It was a little over six months ago, I think, that I met with a small group of brothers in Dallas, Texas, because we all shared a common concern about this so-called social justice movement that seems to have infiltrated evangelical and reformed circles over the last few years. And the result of that meeting was the statement on social justice and the gospel that was published and is available online and has provoked quite a bit of interest and response. There have been people who have looked at that statement and read it and accused those who have framed it and those who have signed it as being racists and homophobes, misogynists, and schismatics. But over 10,000 people have signed that statement and indicated that they appreciate that statement having been published. In fact, hundreds if not thousands have specifically referred to that statement as something of an oasis for them in what has been going on in the evangelical and reformed world. Uh, The approval of that statement, we don't think, is because of its pristine theological constructions, not because of the eloquence of of its language, but because it struck a nerve. And it shined a light on an issue that desperately needs the light of God's Word shined on it. We simply cannot ignore any longer the fact that there have been different trends and different ideologies that have been promoted in our unbelieving culture that over the last several years have begun to infiltrate churches and Christian institutions. Even some heretofore trustworthy trusted, trustworthy churches and institutions. And the biblical results are that the foundations, as has been warned, and we've been warned about in the scripture, have begun to be eroded in some of these places, and practices arising from scripture have begun to be thwarted. Well, as many of us have discovered over the last couple of years, to stand against elements of this social justice movement is to be accused of being against justice. It's to be accused of wanting to see people be oppressed and left unhelped and unloved. And our hope in this conference is to give the lie to those kinds of accusations and to demonstrate that we are against much of what is going on in the name of social justice precisely because we are for genuine justice. We're against feminism because we're for women. We're against homosexuality and transgenderism and all the sexual deviations and perversions that are promoted today because we are for men and women and boys and girls knowing and experiencing healthy, joyful sexuality. We are against victimization and class warfare because we are for the oppressed and the victimized. So my concern is that what is being offered by many of the leaders of this social justice movement is at best only a slight healing of the real wounds that they have identified with the results being at best merely palliative and not restorative. If I have a deadly cancer and you are able to come and treat me so that the painful symptoms subside but leave the tumor in my body, you might walk away feeling really good about yourself. And I might even thank you for what you've done. 
But in reality, what you've done will not keep me from dying from cancer. And it's precisely for that reason that I say I'm against the social justice movement because I am for genuine justice. If we're going to be effective advocates of genuine biblical justice, then we need to look at the God who alone is righteous, whose righteous character defines what is just for us. We must heed his word. And to help us get on that path this afternoon, I want to direct our attention to one of the most often cited verses in the social justice discussions going on. As Jared mentioned, it is Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which says quite simply, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This verse has been called the finest summary of the content of practical religion to be found in the Old Testament. Ancient rabbis referred to this verse as a one-line summary of the whole law. The prophet's response in verse 8 is provoked by questions that have come from the congregation of the Jewish people whom he's representing. These questions have come as a result of a lawsuit that the Lord is bringing against his covenant people. So in order for us to gain the context properly, I want to read the summary of this covenant lawsuit as it is found in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6 of Micah's book. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll see this on page 779. 779 is where the chapter starts. So hear the word of God from Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says as God indicts his people. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. And here it comes. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people. Remember what Balak, the king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. So God says, I've saved you. I've taken you through the wilderness. I've turned your enemies who would destroy you into those who wound up blessing you. What is your complaint against me? Well, the people then, being indicted, respond, beginning in verse 6, with a series, of <clears throat> a series of questions. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then, in behalf of God, the prophet responds. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Three things in that 
summary statement that are required by God of His covenant people. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. The first two are horizontal, and they govern our relationships with other people. The third one is vertical and governs our relationship to God. What I hope to do in looking at this passage with you is to demonstrate that we will not be able to understand, much less to fulfill these requirements, without understanding and obeying God's commandments. God requires us to be lovingly kind and just toward our neighbors and to be lovingly submissive to Him as our God. This is precisely how Jesus summarized all the law and the prophets. When He was asked what the chief commandment was in Matthew 22, He says, the answer is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind and your soul. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The only way that we can fulfill what God requires of us is to be loving. We must be lovingly kind and just to our neighbors. We must be lovingly submissive to our God. That's what Jesus taught. That's what Micah chapter 6 verse 8 teaches as well. So this is God's word to his covenant people who have strayed from him. Throughout the book of Micah, we find the Lord indicting his people for specific injustices. For example, if you turn to chapter 2, you'll see at the very beginning of that chapter in verses 1 and 2, he speaks about those who have unjustly stolen houses and lands from their neighbors. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, houses, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Through deceit and power, They steal what is not rightly theirs. They oppress the powerless. They deprive the powerless of their rightful possessions simply because they can. In chapter 3, verse 1, Micah calls out the heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, probably referring to the civil leaders who judged cases in the different cities at the city gates. He says that they were to know justice in verse 1, which means they were not simply responsible to have an intellectual awareness of what is right and wrong, but rather they were to know it in the sense that they were determined to see what was right done and to see wrongs overturned, though that's what they were supposed to be. In reality, verse 2 says, they they hate the good and they love the evil. In other words, They wind up destroying people by their wickedness. And the prophet uses very graphic language to describe such destruction. Even the priests and the prophets, men called by God to represent him to the world and to his people, they are given over to injustice. In chapter 3, we see this in verse 5 where prophets are described as speaking pleasant things, speaking peace, but only to those who put food in their mouths. 
to those who pay up. But they declare war against those who don't bribe them. They are ruled by their own appetites, not by God's revelation. And so their proclamations of what is just and true are warped. In chapter 3, verse 11, Micah condemns all of the leaders who are given over to injustice. He says, their civil leaders in Judah give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. So they did what they did for nefarious motives and reasons, all the while claiming, God's among us. God will bless us. These are God's accusations against his people and their injustices. In chapter 6 then, he calls them to account, reminding them that he is the one who redeemed them out of slavery. He's the one who saved them. He guided them safely through the wilderness. And the people standing before him with the guilt of their lawlessness clearly exposed begin to ask, what do we do? How are we to respond to this? Should we present more offerings? Maybe more extravagant offerings? Maybe even present our firstborn sons as an atonement for our sins? And the prophet in behalf of God says, no. You cannot atone for your sins. This is not about atoning for your sins. This is about responding to your God who atones for your sins by living the way that I've called you to live. What does God require? He's told you, O man, what is good. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. In other words, God requires us to lovingly be kind and just toward our neighbors and to be lovingly submissive to him as our God. Micah reminds them that God already had revealed this to them, and they should have known it, and they should have already been living this way. In fact, the language of verse 8 is an echo of Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, where Moses, before the people go into the land of promise, is preaching to them, telling them what God requires of them. And he says there, And now, Israel, what does the Lord God, your God, require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. That's what God has always required of his people. An obedience that is born out of faith in him. A submission to him that is wedded with real love to him that results in a life of compliance to his revealed will. Let's look at Micah's admonition in verse 8 under two broad headings. First, what does it mean to be loving and just, to be lovingly just and kind to others? And then second, what does it mean to be lovingly submissive and humble toward God? Well, with regard to our duty toward others, we are to do justice, to do justice. The word for justice there is the most common word in the Old Testament for the exercise of government according to the standard of God's law. 
This means, as Cal Beisner has rightly pointed out in his little book on social justice, that there must be four ingredients regarding how to treat people justly. The scripture lays these out for us. In order to fulfill this doing justice, we must first of all treat people lawfully. That is, to deal with them in accordance with what God has righteously revealed in His commandments. We see this summarized in the so-called second table of the Ten Commandments, the last six of the ten. They plainly tell us what is required, what is owed to everyone because we are made in the very image of God. So what does it entail? It entails honoring your father and your mother, respecting them, being submissive to them, as well as to all duly appointed authorities under God. It tells us not to murder, but rather to promote the life and welfare of other people. It means we will not commit adultery, but will instead preserve our own and our neighbor's purity in heart, in speech, in behavior. It means don't steal. Don't take stuff that doesn't belong to you. Don't defraud people of that which is theirs by right. Honor your contracts. Honestly seek to protect your own and your neighbor's wealth. Don't bear false witness. Honestly speak to and about other people. Promote and maintain both your own and your neighbor's good name. And don't covet whatever your neighbor might have. But be content with what God has given to you. And be content with what God has entrusted to others. If we're going to do justice, we must treat people lawfully. We must relate to them on the basis of what God has summarized for us in those last six of the Ten Commandments. But there's a second ingredient in the biblical justice. And that is, we must also treat people impartially. We, <clears throat> we must show no sinful favoritism or any prejudice toward any image bearer of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Moses charged the judges of Israel by saying to them, Hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. In other words, don't look at the face of the person who stands before you in the courtroom. Don't regard his background, his skin color. Don't regard if it's man or woman, but deal honestly with regard to what the law actually says. Treat people impartially. It was failure at just this point that caused James to write what he does in his little letter in the New Testament. In James chapter 2, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and, ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing 
and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? You have shown sinful partiality. You've made distinctions on the basis of things that should not be taken into consideration as you regard people. Now that does not mean that you treat everyone the same. That everybody should experience the same outcome in life. This is one of the common misconceptions that seems to be going on today in the name of social justice. But doing justice does not mean that everybody gets a trophy and they're all the same. Why? Because biblical justice also requires that you treat people proportionately. You must treat them lawfully. You must treat them without partiality, but you must treat them proportionately, how they deserve to be treated. A judge in a courtroom should not sentence a murderer with the same sentence that he would sentence a man who stole a bicycle. This historically has been known as lex talionis, the law of retaliation. Let the punishment fit the crime. It's based upon passages like Exodus chapter 21 where case laws are being spelled out and the example is given of a pregnant woman who is injured by two men who are fighting. And there it says, if there's harm to the child, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You've heard that, right? Probably you've heard it used in the wrong way. It is not a license for revenge. It is a mitigation on what justice must look like. It's a restraint so that when you suffer injustice, you will not give give vent to injustice in response. So if somebody knocks your tooth out, it would be unjust for you to gouge their eyes out. There is to be proportionality. There is to be an awareness that the punishment should fit the crime. Well, the fourth ingredient in biblical justice is that we must also treat people equitably. Equitably. To give to each person what he or she is due. Now, this is precisely what Jesus will do when he returns to judge the earth in righteousness. In Matthew 16, 27, he said, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. This is precisely what Paul advocates in Romans 13, 7. He says to Christians, We must pay to everyone what we owe them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Some people deserve certain treatment because of who they are or the position that they hold. Parents deserve to be honored by their children simply because they are their parents. Civil authorities deserve to be respected because of the office that they hold that has been ordained by God. Others 
are to be treated based upon what they do. So murderers deserve to have their lives forfeited because Genesis 9-6 says that if you shed a man's blood, your own blood should be shed. And elders who rule well, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine, are to be shown double honor. They deserve that because of what they do. These are the principles that go into biblical justice. To do justice means that we must treat people lawfully, impartially, proportionately, and equitably. And where we see these principles being violated, brothers and sisters, we must stand up, we must call foul, we must speak out. And when Christians call for justice, they may, must make sure that what they are calling for meets this criteria for biblical justice. This is why the fact that there are no female Navy SEALs is not a matter of justice. It's not that women are being repressed. There is a certain qualification that needs to be met to be a member of an elite military fighting force. And if you don't meet the qualification, then you shouldn't be welcomed in to that club of military fighters. <clears throat> this is what makes women not being allowed to be pastors in churches not a matter of injustice. Because God's word has forbid that. It has prescribed what kind of people are to be pastors. And it's not just men, it's only certain men, certain kinds of men. It is this understanding of justice <laughs> that we see modeled in much of this nation's history, though not always practiced the way that it should be. And that has been handed down throughout history that has called, caused Lady Justice to be personified with a blindfold, with a scale, and with a sword. So there's no partiality. So there is an equitable judgment that is made that is proportionate. And those who need to be punished will be punished. And those who need to be defended will be defended. And this should be done justly. So we must do justice. But we're also called to love kindness. To love kindness. This word kindness here is that Hebrew word you may have heard, hesed. It's a word that's difficult to translate in all of its fullness. It's used to describe God's covenant faithfulness to his people. It's often translated mercy or steadfast love. It carries the idea of acting and accepting the responsibility of the relationship that you have with another person. You accept it, you own it, and you act accordingly. No matter how intimate that relationship or distant that relationship might be. It's the keeping of Faith between related parties, one writer puts it. Usually, this word is used for relationships where one party is obviously weaker and dependent, and the other party is stronger and able to provide. So one needs kindness and mercy. The other is able to provide kindness and mercy, and to do so without any kind of external obligation that coerces it. This is precisely the relationship that every child of God has with our God. We're dependent upon Him. He is omnipotent. 
and able to meet all of our needs. He can give whatever we need. Brothers and sisters, when God pledged Himself to us before the foundation of the world, set His love upon us to choose us to be His people, to be adopted into His family, it was hesed. It was a steadfast love. When He determined to send forth His Son to accomplish everything necessary so that sinners can be reconciled to Him, and He ordained that Jesus, His own Son, would become a man, and that that man would live a life of complete obedience to His commandments, and then lay down His life on the cross in order to atone for the sins of His people, it was out of this steadfast love. It was mercy, kindness, covenant faithfulness. So as Christians, we've experienced this free, life-changing kindness from God. This mercy that has come to us through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And as we have turned from our sin and trusted Christ as Lord, what God is for us in covenant faithfulness is made known to us. And we enter into that by His grace. As His children who have experienced this kindness, we are called to glorify Him by loving such kindness. To do kindness and to love kindness. Whereas doing justice governs our actions, loving kindness governs our attitudes and our affections. And it shows us that God's always been concerned with more than just our mere external compliance to His commandments. This understanding that we're called to love mercy, love kindness, keeps us from relating to people with a mere perfunctory outlook. It requires an inner delight in us to do His will. So we are called not only to be kind and be merciful, but to love being kind. To love being merciful. God's always been concerned for this kind of inner disposition of his people's affections. David says in Psalm 51 that God desires and requires truth in the inward parts. He calls us to delight in his law, which Psalm number one says, the blessed man will do. Because he'll see that God's way is not only right, but it's good. And he will embrace the goodness of God's ways. The Apostle Paul said that in his inner being, he delighted in this law of God. In the Sermon on the Mount, part of which Jared read earlier, we see the spirituality of God's commandments taught to us by our Lord and Savior. Showing, again, that God's law governs not just our, our hands and our feet and what we do. It governs our heads, our hearts, our thoughts, our attitudes, our desires, our affections. So we must not only refrain from murder, but if we're going to keep the sixth commandment, brothers and sisters, we must not harbor sinful anger. But we must not only refrain from <clears throat> physical adultery, but to keep the seventh commandment, we must also avoid lustful looks, lustful thoughts. We're to love Hesed. Kindness, that which undertakes to do good to those in need. Well, this is a sobering point <clears throat> of self-evaluation to just stop and ask ourselves, do I love 
mercy? Do I not only practice kindness, but do I actually delight in practicing kindness? Do I love showing kindness to people who are in need of it when it's not deserved? Do I delight in showing kindness to people who cannot demand it of me? Well, this is what God requires of us. To develop in such a way inwardly that we rejoice in mercy and kindness. How can we develop such dispositions? And what can we do to create and nurture this kind of love for kindness in ourselves as children of God? We are helped by remembering the love and the mercy and kindness that God has shown to us in Jesus Christ. To remember how God has forgiven our sins and delighted in forgiving our sins. To take God at His word when He reveals to us His own delight and pleasure in saving us. This is exactly what Micah does at the end of his book. In chapter 7, near the very conclusion, he just breaks out in doxology in verse 18. He says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Hesed. Kindness, mercy, it's that same word. As we consider not only the mercy that has come to us in the life and death and resurrection of God's Son for us, but the fact that God delights in showing us such mercy, as we contemplate what Isaiah says, that it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. God delighted in the death of the Son of His love because of the mercy that that death brings to sinners in need. How can we not be affected? How can we be satisfied to simply go through the external requirements that we read in God's Word? How can we be satisfied to have hearts that remain cold and indifferent to showing mercy and kindness? In the ways that we've been shown mercy and kindness. Well, God requires us to be lovingly kind and just toward our neighbors. But secondly, He also requires us to be lovingly submissive to Him as God. Walk humbly with your God. The first requirement concerns how we relate to people. The second requirement concerns how we relate to our Creator. To walk humbly. Humbly. The idea is to be careful and cautious. To be circumspect. To be conscious of the holiness and the sovereignty of our God. As you know, walking in Scripture is a metaphor for life. Just living. So this is a call to cultivate a lifestyle of humility before our God. Remembering that no matter where you are, what you are doing, you are always living before the face of your God who is almighty, who is holy, who is full of mercy and love for you. It's hard for us to be appropriately humble. It's hard because we tend to measure ourselves by other people. We can always find somebody that we think we're doing better than. It's hard for us because we tend to be too self-conscious. Conscious of our, our existence and our thinking, what we're doing. 
And so we wind up either thinking too highly of ourselves, too much of ourselves, or just thinking of ourselves too much. You know, which if we could just stop and be arrested for a moment, we would have to confess, I know I'm not much, but I'm all I ever think about. And we are called to think about, not ourselves, but to think about God. To get over ourselves. Remember Him. To meditate on Him. To study. Consider Him. Listen to what Isaiah 66, 1 and 2 says. The Lord, <clears throat> the Lord says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool, says the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Trembles at God's word. Do you tremble at God's word? Do you take God's word seriously? I mean, does His word consciously inform the way you live? The decisions you make? How you plan your life? Where you're going to live? How you're going to live? Are you being shaped by the word? Are you willing to be corrected and to be reproved by the Word? To be taught truth by the Word? Are you willing to be trained in righteousness by the Word? That's the kind of humility that God requires of His people. We are to walk humbly with your God. Your God. You see, the prophet here is not telling us how to make God our God. He's not setting this up as a ladder that we climb and when we get to the top, then we will have made atonement for our sins and God will become our God. But Rather, he's telling us what the God who is our God, who's pledged himself to us, who has redeemed us, requires of us. And this verse 8 is a summary of his will for us. How he expects us to live. And just as doing justice and loving kindness point to the second table of the Ten Commandments, so walking humbly with your God, point to those first four of the Ten Commandments. God has revealed to us how we are to live before Him. We can't wing it. We're not free to make it up as we go and say, well, surely God will be pleased with this. Or surely God understands this. No, brothers and sisters, God has spoken to us in His Word. So we must avoid having any other gods before Him. Are there rivals for God's affections in your own heart and mind? Are there things that you find yourself more enthusiastic about, more delighted in, more readily given to spend time thinking about and finding pleasure in than God? Do you esteem Him? Revere Him? We must guard our hearts from idols and from thinking that God is <clears throat> able to be worshipped in any way other than what He Himself has prescribed in His Word. So are your thoughts about God shaped by His Word and His Word alone? Do you realize you're never free to just approach God on your own terms and what you might think to be a good idea? We're never free to justify our thoughts by saying, well, God to me is like, God has revealed what He's like. We must be careful not to take the name of the Lord in vain, but rather speak of Him reverently, 
Live for Him honestly. Not misrepresent Him to yourself and to others. We must remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do you even acknowledge that God has the right to command how you think about and use your time? That as God who created you, that He has the right to tell you how to structure your schedule? Do you think about the requirement that God's given us to set aside one day in seven as a weekly reminder that we're not God, that He is? And just as He rested in the completion of His work of creation, so He calls upon His creatures to rest, to acknowledge that we need Him and rest in His work for us. Do you even think about the Lord's Day as special in any way? Or is this just a foreign thought to you so that you think it's no big deal to take off and go to the beach on Sunday? Why not? It's just once. Why not take a break? Why not just do what you think is good? Because God has called us to walk humbly with Him. And He's revealed to us what is right and good for us in His commandments. Well, you cannot walk humbly with your God if you do not keep His commandments and trust Him as you take Him at His word. To walk humbly with Him is to be lovingly submissive to His commandments. So this is what God requires of us. We are to be lovingly kind and just toward our neighbors and to be lovingly submissive to Him as our God. Do justice. Love kindness. That is, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Walk humbly with your God. That is, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. This encompasses the whole duty of man before God. And what does genuine neighbor love look like? It looks like obedience to and delight in God's commandments. What will real love do to our neighbors? What will it look like if you're loving your neighbors? Not just with some kind of sentimental thought of, oh, this is a neat thing to do but in accordance with what God says is love? Well, just listen to the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 13. He says, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he says, here's how you know you're doing it. For the commandments, <clears throat> you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. There's no biblical justice apart from or outside of God's commandments. There's no humble walking with God apart from or outside His commandments. So, brothers and sisters, if we're going to love God supremely, and love other people sincerely, we're going to have to be sure that we are doing so in conformity with what God has commanded. This is where the rub comes in with so much that is going on in the name of social justice and love. 
To tell a man who confesses that he is sexually attracted to other men that such attractions are not sinful? When God in Romans 1.26 calls them dishonorable passions, that is not love. That is hate. It will cause a person to go to hell being comforted by your words. To tell a woman that she can serve as a pastor of a local church when God through the Apostle Paul specifically says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she should remain silent. It's not being loving, loving to her. It's being hateful to her. It is treating her contrary to what God has specifically revealed. To suggest that a person should be treated better or worse before the law or is owed more or less from people because of the color of his skin is not loving. It's hateful. There's no real justice. There's no real mercy. There's no real humble devotion to God apart from the sincere keeping of His commandments. So, if we're going to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God, we cannot simply make it up as we go. We cannot pretend that we know in and of ourselves all that that entails. Rather, we must seek to live this way on His terms in accordance with His commands. And of course, none of our forefathers did this perfectly. Nobody in our history, none of our spiritual forefathers and heroes that we all look back to and admire have done this just right. They've all failed miserably at many points. And we should not pretend otherwise, nor be embarrassed by that reality. But we must not ignore the lesson that God teaches us in His Word as we try to evaluate such activities and attitudes in the past. We need to be willing to examine those attitudes and actions in the light of God's Word. And where they failed, let us acknowledge it, lament it, and learn from it. But more importantly, let's be honest enough to admit that none of us has fulfilled these requirements without fail either. Nobody in this room can say, oh yeah, I have done that, I've done it perfectly. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what should we do? What are we to do? Make greater sacrifices? Come up with excessive ways of displaying our worship? Pretend that we're different than we really are? Or fall into despair because we know what we're not called, we're, we're not yet what we're called to be? No. Rather, we're to remember that though we have failed, there is someone who has not failed, who has kept this requirement of God perfectly, who always does justice, who always loves mercy, who always lives in humility before his God. We are to remember that in Him we are counted righteous before God. In Him we are acceptable to God and forgiven. And in Him, the one who died for us, shed His blood for us, attained righteousness for us, all of our imperfect obedience to God's commands are approved by God. So brothers and sisters, how should we then live? Why, 
we should look to Jesus Christ and trust him and commit ourselves to being people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with our God. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've not left us in this world without a clear testimony to yourself and clear guidance to us. And we thank you for the ways that you have spoken in your word so clearly. And we confess our tendency is to skate over these clear, understandable things. Forgive us. Convict us. And by the power of your Spirit, strengthen us to look fully into what you have revealed and to embrace your way, not only as right, but as good. We thank you for Jesus. We see what you require of us. We have to confess we have failed. We, we cannot deliver what we owe. We thank you that what you have required, you have in grace provided through your Son, our Savior. So help us to rejoice in him, to live in the freedom that comes from having our sins forgiven by him, righteousness credited to us because of him, and to pursue a life that will bring honor and glory to you that will be good for other people in this world. We love you. We thank you for being our God. Hear our prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.